Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson. And I'm Trisha Bobita. And before we go any further, this week we need you to hear something very important. What hit us? Small asteroid fragments. This morning. How big were those? Those were nothing. The size of basketballs and Volkswagens. This new one you're tracking, how big? It's the size of Texas, Mr. President. It's what we call a global killer. The end of mankind. Half the world will be incinerated by the heat blast. And the rest will freeze to death in nuclear winter. Basically the worst parts of the Bible. In case you couldn't tell, that is the trailer from the 1998 hit film Armageddon. This is like a sci-fi romance, which has Bruce Willis, Ben Affleck, Liv Tyler. Do not forget Steve Buscemi. Oh, yes. That's who is fantastic. Important. Who suffers from, spoiler alert, space madness in this movie? <laughs> I totally forgot about that. So this is a movie about how there's an asteroid hurtling towards Earth, and NASA decides that they have to drill into it and plant a bomb to destroy it before it destroys us all. It's worth noting there's also a lot of Aerosmith in this movie. A great deal of Aerosmith. So today's show is not necessarily about Armageddon, but it is all about asteroids and space rocks. We're going to talk with a real-life asteroid hunter. Her name is Dr. Carrie Nugent, and she's doing the important work of, like, potentially saving us from disaster by tracking asteroids. Then we'll talk with the two lady co-hosts of Undiscovered, a new science podcast, which has an episode all about meteorite hunting. So it is worth noting that meteorite hunting is very different from asteroid hunting. Greta, do you know the difference between an asteroid and a meteorite? You know, I did not 10 days ago, but I definitely do now. Do you think that a average tourist in Chicago might know the difference between an asteroid and a meteorite? You know, Trisha, I think that's a really good question. Candace, the producer, get thee to Navy Pier. <laughs> what is the difference between an asteroid and a meteorite? Hmm. Asteroid. An asteroid is a planet coming at us. A meteorite is a star. I know they're both rocks. That's I don't know. An asteroid uh, remains; it doesn't uh, travel that much in space. I think. Mm. Is an asteroid like a comet, right? Mm. Do you want to answer the question? No. No one. I have no idea. But do you have any idea? Well, I'm asking a question. Do you want to try? I mean, a meteorite doesn't it um, come down and it's dying and it's flying through our Earth's atmosphere? Mm. Isn't one a dying star? Mm. Oh, God. I haven't taken astronomy in three years. I don't know. <laughs> They're both in space. I know that. Uh, the difference between an asteroid and a meteorite. No idea. A meteorite is uh, bigger. Mm. Do you want to answer our question? Okay, do you want to tell me what the difference between an asteroid and a meteorite is? He, he knows. It's Ethan. Okay, Ethan knows. Meteorite is 
comet that landed on Earth already. An asteroid is a thing that's like flying around in the air. Man, if only he hadn't said comet. He was so close. The youngest person in that tape was the closest to being correct, I think. It's worth noting. But nobody got it quite right, so we need another space expert. It's the person I go to when I have questions about space. Because even though on this show sometimes we talk to people like Neil deGrasse Tyson or real-life astronauts, when I have questions about space, I go to my nephew Max, who is six years old. Hi. Is this Max? Yes. Well, Max, I have a couple of questions for you about space. Can I ask you some questions? Yeah. What is an asteroid? Well, an asteroid is a space rock that goes around the sun in a orbit. Yeah, that's good. You're right. Now, so asteroids are those big rocks in the asteroid belt. But then what's a meteor? A meteor is a small piece of the asteroid that breaks off. And then what happens if a meteor comes close to Earth? A meteorite. Oh, a meteor that crashes through the atmosphere and lands on the surface of the Earth. Oh, a meteorite is a meteor that fell down to Earth? Yeah. Should we go see some space rocks when you come visit me in Chicago soon? Yeah. Max definitely wasn't reading those definitions from a book about space. Oh, definitely not. Definitely not. He definitely wasn't maybe overprepared by my brother. (laughs) Okay, so let's recap one final time. Trisha, what is the difference between an asteroid and a meteorite? It takes several steps to get from asteroid to meteorite. So an asteroid is a big hunk of space rock that is orbiting, usually, the sun between Mars and Jupiter. If those two things bump into each other and a little piece breaks off, that's a meteoroid. A meteoroid that ends up in Earth's atmosphere streaking across the sky like a shooting star, that's a meteor. And if it comes all the way down to Earth and hits the ground, that is a meteorite. So pretty much big rock out in space, little rock here on Earth. That's the path from asteroid to meteorite. Now that we have that settled, let's get to our conversation with Carrie Nugent. As we said, Carrie is an asteroid hunter. She works at the California Institute of Technology's Infrared Processing and Analysis Center to hunt down and study asteroids. She even has an asteroid named after her, and her book is called, if you couldn't guess, Asteroid Hunters. Carrie Nugent, welcome to Nerdette. I am so excited to be here. Oh, we're really excited to have you. So I figured we should start with the basics. Many of us have probably seen Armageddon. We may or may not have even been like that perfect ripe age of 15 and wept a lot at the movie theater when we saw this. (laughs) But I figure we should work with like a non-Hollywood definition of what actually is an asteroid. So asteroids are basically uh, rocks um, or chunks of metal that are out in space. And uh, they're really interesting to study because they're some of the oldest material in the solar system. And so, you know, they formed before the planets did. And so when you study asteroids, you're kind of looking back in time, seeing what the very ancient solar system was like. So you are an asteroid hunter. What are you actually doing any given day at work? Like, do you work nights so you can see them? How does all this work? Well, I mean, there's a lot of asteroid hunters all across the nation, and most of them do spend some time at night at telescopes. But uh, my job's a little bit different. I use a telescope that's out in space called Neowise. And uh, because of that, I just work days in an office building in a cubicle, basically, uh, on my laptop. And uh, with a great group of colleagues, uh, we look for asteroids and report them to the Minor Planet Center, which keeps track of all of them. 
So how much fun is it to tell people what you do at dinner parties? Like what kind of reactions do you get? It's super fun. And I always get asked about Bruce Willis, which I love. (laughs) I really owe Mr. Willis a debt of gratitude for bringing attention to the work that I do. (laughs) I feel like I should apologize about my early Armageddon reference, but maybe we're just all good. No, no, I'm I'm always delighted about it because it's an obscure job, but everybody knows about it because of Deep Impact and Armageddon. And so I really am grateful to those two movies for raising awareness about this work. So why do you think it's important to study asteroids? Well, an asteroid impact is the only natural disaster that we have the technology to prevent. So we can't even predict exactly when a hurricane's going to happen or when an earthquake's going to happen, but we can predict the paths of asteroids with extreme precision. And given enough warning time, ideally decades, we could move one out of the way. So what we need to do now is we need to map near Earth's space, find all of the large asteroids that get close to Earth, and figure out where they're going, and figure out um, whether one is headed towards us or not. So when you say a large asteroid, I mean, what is the potential impact that one of these could have on the Earth? It could be insanely horrible, right? It could be insanely horrible. I mean, (laughs) it was certainly a bad day for the dinosaurs uh, 65 million years ago. Fair enough. Um, But one important thing to know is that that asteroid that killed the dinosaurs was about 10 kilometers across. And people searching for asteroids over generations have found over 90% of the asteroids that get close to Earth that are bigger than one kilometer. So we have found almost all of those really big ones, which is really great. Um, We're working to find that last 10%. Certainly, that's really important. And now we're looking for the 140-year meter or bigger asteroids. And we found about 30% of those. Okay, so say that you find an asteroid that looks like it could be heading to Earth. You said that we have the technology to be able to modify the trajectory. How do we actually do that? I mean, that's a great question. And um, a key thing is is that there's not a one-size-fits-all solution, and you'd have to really tailor your response to the particular asteroid, um, which, again, is one of the reasons why we would look for them now, so we could plan exactly what to do in that particular situation. There's lots of options on the table. Um, I was lucky enough to talk to NASA's planetary defense officer, which is a real job title. Uh, That was (laughs) Lindley Johnson. And he said that there's three main uh, strategies on the table. One is a gravity tractor. So you put something in orbit around the asteroid and slowly kind of tug it off its path. And that's really nice because it's really controllable. It's slow. You can really see how the asteroid is moving over time. Another option is the kinetic impactor. You give it a hard shove, you hit it with something heavy and shove it to the side. And then the last option is the nuclear option, which is kind of a last resort because there's a lot of unknowns with that. You know, it makes for a great movie, but when it comes down to the science, there's a lot of things that we couldn't predict precisely with that. So it would be a last resort. But it is a lot of energy and you would want to detonate it next to the asteroid again to give it a hard shove out of the way. A key thing to realize is that you don't necessarily have to move the asteroid a big distance. You just have to change its speed a little bit. Oh, sure. Because an impact with the Earth is a timing issue, right? It has to be there at the same time the Earth is there. So if you slow down the asteroid just a little bit or speed it up just a little bit, it'll miss Earth entirely. So you don't have to make a big change in order to have a big effect down the road. Can I just say nuclear option, kinetic impactor, and gravity tractor would all be pretty good band names. Definitely. Or sci-fi novels. <laughs> or sci-fi novels, exactly. So you say that one of your hobbies is asteroid names. What does that even mean? So one of the really cool things about this field is that if you discover an asteroid, you get to name it. And because of that, there's a bunch of weird asteroid names out there. So for example, there is the asteroid 95962 Copito, which was named after an albino gorilla, which I think (laughs) is really funny. There's also one named 13579 All Odd, um, because all the numbers are odd. And one of my favorites is also 88705 Potato. (laughs) 
Yes, I was hoping you would mention the potato one because it's so quintessentially American too, right? It is. It is. And it was, you know, if you read the, they come with these little um, paragraphs describing sometimes why they were named that way. And that one was after the UN's International Year of the Potato. But I think that was just an excuse. I'm pretty sure they were just like, that one probably looks like a potato. Let's call that one potato. That'd be hilarious. Wait, does the UN always have international years of produce items? Is that a thing? I would assume so, but I've only heard of this through asteroid potato. (laughs) So I wonder, do you have a white whale of asteroid hunting? Like, is there something that has just eluded you forever that you would love to be able to find? It's really interesting you ask that question. So the Minor Planet Center, which is this international authority for keeping track of asteroids, has this file they call the File of One Night Stands. Which is <laughs> one number one is like a great name, and number two contains all of these asteroids that were only observed over one night. And if you only observe it for one night, you don't have enough information to get an orbit. Um, and so it would be a really great. I think there's a lot of asteroid hunters who would like to nail down those one night stands and you know make them into nice orbits and figure out where they're going. Make honest asteroids out of them. Exactly. Exactly. Wow, that's really interesting. So, what are some of the other questions that we still don't have answers for that you are really working towards trying to figure out? Well, I think that. The interesting thing about asteroids is that despite generations of work on these objects, I mean, they've been known to science for hundreds of years, there's still so much we don't know about them. And I think a lot of times people think that space is explored. You know, we've sent probes to every planet. We have these beautiful images. I think for, you know, just the person on the street, they might have this impression that, well, we've mapped our solar system. Um, Any more discoveries have to lie further out beyond that. But when it comes down to it, we haven't discovered most of the asteroids that are out there. We don't know how big most of them are, and we don't know what most of them are made out of. Like, we know the types of things they're probably made out of, but we can't say that asteroid is made out of rock. So I think that there's just kind of a lot to learn. It's kind of very basic exploration in that sense. After the break, we talk about why we don't really like to talk about what it's like to be a female scientist. Plus, really fun homework from Carrie. It's a group project. But don't worry, nerds. You don't have to do this group project all by yourself while everyone else just sits there. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Tanwen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. So, Carrie, in your press materials, you are really clear about not wanting to talk about the fact that you are a woman in science. And I find that especially interesting being a host of Nerdette because that's something that we try to avoid also, right? Like that question, what is it like to be a woman in any field at all, is just really superficial and not very insightful, I think. But I've never really encountered anyone who has been so clear and concise and opinionated and proactive from the point of view of a woman in science in saying, like, listen, this isn't a conversation that I'm interested in having. And at the risk of actually having that conversation, I would like to ask you why you take that stand. Yeah, and I'm actually really happy to talk about why I take the stand. I don't know if that's ironic or not. You know, this is definitely my own personal opinion, but 
you know, certainly astronomy is overwhelmingly white and male. And the first step to addressing that is to talk about it. And so I think that a lot of times when you're a scientist and you're a woman, uh, you get asked questions about your gender because people are genuinely trying to be helpful. <laughs> They're trying to, like, raise awareness. But my personal feeling is that sometimes it can be deeply counterproductive because then those are questions that ordinary scientists, read male, aren't getting. And it makes women scientists seem like some sort of other, some sort of substandard scientist. And that's what bothers me. You know, if I'm talking about my science to people, I just want to talk about the science. Um, I don't necessarily, you know, want to talk about anything but that because, you know, that's what I do. I'm a scientist. I want to talk about science. And I have to say that's also like partly a selfish reason because I think those questions are incredibly awkward. I mean, what if someone came up to you, Greta, and was like, what is it like being a female reporter? What special <laughs> challenges do you face? Or like any professions, like what is it like being a female accountant? You know, you just like, what do you say to that? <laughs> like, it's just an awkward yeah. question. Being a female scientist is like being a male scientist, except for sometimes you get awkward questions from reporters. Absolutely. So in your free time, you have a podcast called Space Pod, where you talk to smart people to, as you put it, sit down and share a drink and tell the world about their corner of the cosmos. And I was wondering, how important is the drink in this situation? It is everyone's favorite part of the show. <laughs> Nobody cares about the science. Everyone wants to know what we're drinking. And it's actually the fun part for me because sometimes I get very well-respected people the field, maybe not people whose names, uh, you know, not super famous people, but people who are famous in our community. And I'll get them to try something like really gross or really weird. Um, one of my favorite ones is I was talking to Dr. Andrew Benson, who's this very, very well-respected expert on dark matter. And I got him to drink this black charcoal lemonade Ooh. that you get from this weird juice bar in Pasadena. <laughs> And it's like, it's black and it looks really gross, but he was like totally game with it. And it was, it was not great, the lemonade, but the show was great. And he had really interesting things to say about dark matter. So that's a, it's a pretty fun thing to do. Absolutely. So what have you learned from the podcast that you, you know, that has given you insight into your own career? Number one, I've gotten much better, I think, at simplifying more complicated problems. So if I'm going to sit down and write a grant, I am able to instantly, you know, because I've been doing this podcast for a while, I'm able to take my idea and be like, this is the key bit. This is the simplified reason we're doing this in one sentence. In addition, it's given me a nice broad breadth of science. So lately, I've been talking to a lot of people who study exoplanets. And I don't have a background in exoplanets, but now I'm learning a ton about them. And it's, it's really, really interesting. So one thing, I'm going to ask you to be a little more reflective, if that's okay with you. In your book, there's this line that really caught my attention. You say, metaphorically, asteroids seem to embody our lack of control over the universe. Do you think that your understanding of space and exploration of asteroids has influenced your personal philosophies and or stress levels? I think in some sense, yes. I know that, you know, I was a kid when Armageddon came out, too. And I think like everybody who saw that movie as a kid, we had some fear that an asteroid was going to wipe out our school and maybe we shouldn't have to do our homework. <laughs> and I think that there is something very interesting about that, you know, this particular hazard, an asteroid impact. Um, when you really look at the science, you can break it down and see that it's very solvable. And I think you can apply that to any big, scary problem. There's a point in the book where I talk about a paper that was written, and it was talking about major threats to humanity, and it dropped in there the uh, AIDS epidemic. And it was really interesting because, you know, AIDS today is clearly a terrible disease, but it's not quite as 
terrifying as it seemed to be in the 90s anymore. Um, again, because people have like work to fix that problem. And I think it, it really gives me hope that no matter how big and scary a problem is, say global warming, if we can really get together and break it down and look at it logically, um, we can come together and fix these things. That's really nice. It's funny because as a radio reporter, every once in a while, I'll do some stupid, horrible, ridiculous mistake. And I will literally tell myself, like, it's okay, Greta. It's not life or death. It's going to be fine. But you're working in, like, some pretty serious spheres and you're still problem-solving oriented. I appreciate that. Yeah, and I think it's also kind of a testament to the power of teamwork. I couldn't do this alone. Nobody could do this alone. You have to have teams of people working together. You have to have teams of people double-checking work. And that's the only way you really know that you're getting it right is having the data available and everybody double checking everybody else to make sure that, you know, the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed. All right. So check your facts, people. That's right. Okay, so one last thing we would love for you to do is to assign our listeners homework. So my homework for everyone is to go see a meteor shower. Meteor showers are amazing and they are super like easy to do. All you need to do is go outside at the right time of year. Definitely lay on your back, like put a blanket down, lay on the roof of your car, look up for a long time. Don't use your cell phone because it's going to ruin your night vision. You're not going to see as much. And you can check for upcoming meteor showers on the internet. There's a great website that's www.amsmeteors.org. And I believe the next one coming up is the Perseids between July 13th and August 26th. And I would also encourage everybody to make this a group project if they like group projects. They can either do it alone or invite a bunch of friends and like make it a party, like have beers, talk about life. And for extra credit, go see the eclipse. I love this because usually group projects are the sort of thing where I end up doing all the work. But it seems like in this case, everybody just hangs out. Well, you might have to bring all the beer. (laughs) That would that would come down to me, huh? Carrie Nugent, thank you so much for coming on Nerdette. Thank you so much. This was a delight. All right, nerds. If being project manager of your group project means you just bring the beers and everyone goes out and watches a meteor shower, that still sounds pretty fun. This is good homework from Carrie Nugent. I'm still a little concerned that it might involve staying up past my bedtime, but maybe if I just wake up early enough, Mm. it will still be before dawn and I can see some cool stuff. Oh, boy. After the break, we talk with the hosts of Undiscovered, which is a new podcast from the crew over at Science Friday, and we think you're really going to like it. We've been talking about looking for big rocks in space, and now we're going to talk about looking for tiny rocks here on Earth. Undiscovered is a podcast that has dedicated an entire episode to meteorite hunting and one scientist's quest. Trisha sat down to talk with the hosts of the show. Okay. I'm Annie. And I'm Ella. And our podcast is called Undiscovered. These are the two co-hosts of Undiscovered, which is a new podcast that's about the real live work of making science happen. And these two awesome lady nerd co-hosts are here to tell us a little bit more about their new show. So guys, how did this come to be? I think it's so, uh, this is Annie, by the way. So I was a producer on Science Friday and kind of over the years had had this experience talking to scientists where they would just like unspool this amazing long story that I was like, oh, that's great. But like, that doesn't really like work for like our format. And so I pitched to Science Friday the idea of a show that was all about 
story, you know, one story per episode where you are going to hear what this scientist had to go through, what they did to actually figure something out and how it went horribly wrong or something <laughs> like that. Uh, and they bit. So here we are. It's a great moment for this because we've had Hidden Figures be this huge success as a movie that shows the behind the scenes work that it took to get people to space. We've had the new HBO film about Henrietta Lacks that has Rebecca Skloot, the journalist, yeah. uncovering the history of the HeLa cells. I think it's a fun moment for people to realize that science isn't about just eureka moments, but it's about all the stuff that leads up to that. Yeah. And I like the examples you gave because I think both of them touch on some of the themes we like to get into, which is how science is is shaped by culture and also what happens when science gets out into the world, what the social impacts are of these discoveries. Yeah, we and do mistakes. not stay in the lab. Well, and the person that is the meteorite hunter definitely doesn't stay in the lab. Can you tell us what she does? So Nina has like one of the coolest jobs I think you can have because she works on the Mars Curiosity rover. So apparently there is a laser on the little head of the rover and you can't see me right now. She's Christian, demonstrating. But, but every time I talk, I put my little fingers on the top of my head like a little laser. <laughs> anyway, so Nina remotely controls this laser from Los Alamos and she uses it to zap rocks on the surface of Mars to figure out what they're made of. Right. But every once in a while, a little chunk of Mars gets knocked off the planet, hurdles towards Earth, and, and lands here as a meteorite. And so, and in one of the best places to, to find these meteorites, as it turns out, and we, we explain this in the episode, is Antarctica. Let's hear a little bit of a clip of Nina describing what Antarctica is really like. There's no trees. There are no human structures of any kind. There's not any animal, not a single animal, not a bird, not an insect, nothing. And, and that's very strange and very alien. Out here in the middle of Antarctica, even the ice is alien. It's blue. These ice sheets, they're so old. This ice is so compressed, it reflects back blue light. So I can't really do justice to this color. It's something I'd never seen in my life before. It, it is the, almost the same color as the sky. And so on a beautiful, cloudless day, sometimes it's really hard to tell the difference between where the ice ends and the sky begins. So that's where Nina goes in this episode. But there's also a bit of a mystery, too, because they happen upon this rock that seems like suspiciously Mars-like, like it might be a piece of the red planet. Um, so we learn about, you know, where that rock came from and how they know. And it's the story of the rock as well. And how long was she up there for? Five weeks. I don't know why I said up there, as if I could be somewhere that is south of it. <laughs> And the way it happened with Nina is I'd met her shortly before she went down there and had kind of like asked her on a whim, can you just record yourself maybe while you're down there, talk about what you're doing, what what it's like. And then five weeks later, I got this email with like a dump of an hour's worth of audio. And so I remember sitting at my desk listening to like the sound just like shaking her tent in the middle of Antarctica, hearing about her frozen contacts and about the snow that was coming in through her tent zipper and just being like... Wow. Yeah, the wind is so strong, it'll actually push snow through your tent zipper sometimes. Yeah, so you wake up with a pile of snow inside your tent. Wow. Let's hear a little bit more of Nina talk about what it's like to go into a place that's kind of scary. Because they don't let you go to Antarctica unless you have Big Red, the big parka. I'm told that, you know, this is because in case the plane crashes, they want to make sure you have a chance of surviving exposure. <laughs> is that for real? Like, are people joking Guys? when they say that? They're, they're not joking. I laughed and they didn't laugh. And I was like, wait, what? So I don't want to give any spoilers away as to whether the rock that Nina is studying in your episode, The Meteorite Hunter, is actually a piece of Mars or not. People are going to have to go listen to that episode of Undiscovered to find out. 
But can you guys give us a little taste of what's coming up in the rest of this season on your show? Uh, the episode that just came out is about a sex researcher in pre-Nazi Germany who set out to prove that homosexuality was an inborn trait, which was a, a kind of a radical idea. A lot of his fellow queer activists at the time really hated this idea. And it's not, as you might expect, it's not all smooth sailing. Excellent stuff. All these undiscovered stories are available wherever you listen to your podcast. So everyone who's listening to Nerdette should check it out. That's my homework for them. Would you give any homework to our Nerdette listeners before we go? Something else they should read or watch or try or do? Oh, okay. I've got one. This is from an upcoming episode. Um, so it's a little sneak preview. Google mantis shrimp. Okay, just do, just do that right now and go down the wonderful rabbit hole that that is. This is a creature that I've been reading a lot about lately. So, so that's, a, that's a little internet rabbit hole homework for you guys. Okay, so your three pieces of homework this week are, first, from Carrie, watch a meteor shower. From us, check out Undiscovered, because we think you're really going to like it. And then from Annie and Ella, Google mantis shrimp. You seriously will not be sorry. It's so good. Google it, and then hit the image tab, because you want to see pictures, because oh, yeah. it's amazing. That's the most important part, is the pictures, for sure. I don't think I actually read anything about mantis shrimp. Neither did I. I just looked, I just at, looked at, all at all the pictures. The pictures. <laughs> it's very Jim Henson-y. It really is. They're like Muppet shrimp. This show is produced by us, Trisha Bobita and Greta Johnson, along with Candice Mattel. Our executive producer is Joel Meyer, and our intern is Brady Guy. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, follow us on NPR One, or listen in the WBEZ app. You know what's super helpful is if you leave us a nice review on Apple Podcasts. Many thanks to Defying Gravity and Sarah W. Harmon for the really nice reviews. I like Defying Gravity. It feels thematic. It for does. This week's it's fitting, yeah. Also, because Defying Gravity is a musical theater reference, that's the name of the oh, big song really? in Wicked. Adina Menzel sings that. Do you want to tell me more about it? Yeah, I would like us to play all of Wicked. Okay, fine, I have goosebumps. Yes. Tweet at us, find us on Instagram, check us out on Facebook. We are at Nerdette Podcast and all those places. Also, if you would like to tell us which characters from Wicked you think we are, oh. I would be curious to know if they think that you're Glenda or I'm Glenda. Okay. I don't know, really know what that means, but I guess we'll find out. We'll find out. At Nerdette Podcast. <laughs> Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. Do your homework. Do your homework. Max, if you could visit a planet, which one would you go visit? Mars. Yeah? Why? Because it's my favorite planet. Why is it your favorite? Because it's red. But actually, this is something new that I haven't told anyone. Yes, but I switched my colors. Red's not your favorite color anymore? No, I changed it. What is it now? Purple. Are there any planets that are purple? It's Neptune. Neptune is purple? Yeah, it is. Well, that's a much farther trip. We'll have to get a better spaceship. Ah! (laughs) Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to the Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.